I am really excited about this morning. I think I've got a message in store for you that I think you're going to love. I have to give you a little background first, but once you have the background, I think the story will make sense. How many of you have heard the story of Moses taking the children out of Egypt? How many of you have, you're familiar with, with that? Let me see your hands. Okay, some of you are. Okay. And basically what happens is Moses takes the Israeli Hebrew children out of Egypt. They're slaves. He takes them through the desert, and God has promised them a place where they can go that will be their country. It'll be their nation. It, it'll, it'll be theirs. And the phrase that is in the Bible is that it's a land flowing with milk and honey. It's a land of provision. It's a land of, of opportunity, and it's everything you would ever need is there, and I've prepared it for you. I just need you to get through the desert and fight through your circumstance so I can bring you to the promised land. Well, along the way, they arrive at the promised land. Now, we know that it took them 40 years to actually get to the promised land. But if you were to walk it today from Egypt to Israel and, and into that country, it would just take you a matter of a few days. But it took them 40 years. Now, what, what, what's not adding up? Well, the Bible says that the people who came out of Egypt with Moses grumbled and complained and griped and had a negative attitude. And God finally said to that generation, no, you're not getting what I promised you. Because if all you're going to do is gripe and complain and grumble and keep saying, why, why didn't we just stay slaves in Egypt? It was so much better when we were getting beat with whips and at least we had food and we weren't wandering in the hot desert. God's like, you know what? No, mm -mm. your generation will not see the promised land. And the Bible tells us that Moses himself did not even get to go in to the promised land. But the Bible gives us a story, the story that we're going to look at today, that they got to the promised land with Moses, and Moses says, okay, we got to figure out how to take this. So like any good military strategist, they choose 12 spies, one, one from each of the 12 tribes. There were 12 tribes in Israel, and so they took one from each, and they sent 12 spies into Canaan, or the promised land. And so they sent them in. And what we're going to read right now in Numbers chapter 13, Numbers chapter 13, is the story of the spies coming back. In Numbers chapter 13, 25 through 33, it says this. It says, at the end of the 40 days, they returned from exploring the land. They came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us, and it flows with milk and honey. Here's the fruit. But the people who live there are powerful, and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. I'll talk about that in a minute. And the Amalekites live in Negi. The Hittites, the Jebusites, and the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea and along the Jordan. 
Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, we should go up and take possession of the land for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, we can't attack these people. They are stronger than we are. And they spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they had explored. They said, the land we explored devours those living in it. All of the people we saw are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak, come from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes, and we looked the same to them. And so what we have is 12 spies that went and said, God has promised this land. I know where God's calling us. I know what we're supposed to do. But the cities are just, there's, the defense mechanisms are just too, we'll, we won't get over them. And, and the people are just really big. And now the food is amazing. I mean, look at these grapes. These grapes are huge. And, and all of these things are amazing. But I'm just not sure that we can do it. And so they went into the land and they spied it out for 40 days. And they said, here's the proof. We brought back vegetation. Look at this. I mean, the celery sticks are mind-blowing. Can you imagine how much peanut butter we're going to need for the celery stick? I mean, come on. We can't eat this much celery. You know, like celery's minus calories. We eat one of these sticks and we'll be down to 10 pounds. We'll be in trouble. Some of you are like, yes, where are those celery sticks? Right? We can't. This is, this is too much for us. We can't do it. It's not possible. There's it, just too much. And they were gone for 40 days in this land, spying out, going here and there and over there and over here. And they're spying everything out and checking out the people and taking notes and, and doing all sorts of things. And it says in verse 28, it says, We saw the descendants of Anak there, or the descendants of the Nephilim. And basically... In a nutshell, if you study Noah, at the time of Noah, it says that when Noah lived, there were, there were a race of humans that were just supersized. They were supersized. They were a race of people that grew, on average, over seven feet tall. Um, Goliath, we know, Goliath stood almost ten feet tall. And, and so there was, at some point, genetically, this race, uh, and you can look this up, Archaeology, has they've, they have found bones of people that are nine feet tall, eight feet tall, the Nephilim. And so they go and they go, remember, remember in our history, those people that were really big, they're there too. And there is no way we can conquer them. There's no way we can defeat them. There's no way. Those stories of those really giant, that really giant race of people that just grow really big, they're there. We can't beat them. There's too many of them. We can't do it. It doesn't seem possible. It's not possible. But God says, I'm bringing you someplace. Now, when God says, I'm bringing it to you, he never says you're not going to have to fight. He never says that there won't be a struggle. He never says that it might not seem impossible. He never says that. He simply says, I'm bringing you to it, and I've provided it for you. We tend to interpret that sometimes when God gives us a vision for our lives or something that we want to accomplish, we take that and mean, well, God's just going to do everything for me. But as parents, do you do everything for your kids or do you want them to learn the importance of hard work and grit and determination? Do you do everything for your kids? No. 
At least if you're a good parent, you don't, right? You, you make them do their chores and, before they can go play. And you, you, you make them, like, no, you signed up. And I know that you don't care for baseball, but you signed up and you're going to stick it out. And you're not going to get the bail, right? Some of you are like, oh, snap, what would you bring that up for? Because I'm a pastor. I mess in your business. This is what I do, right? It's part of being a pastor. You, a good parent teaches their child grit, determination, stick to commitment, because they're going to need that in life, because things aren't always going to go well. So let's not interpret when God tells us something that God just says, yeah, I'll just do it all for you. You just sit back and, and just don't worry about it. You won't have any problems. But these people, 10 out of the 12 spies came back and said, it's too much. Oh, and that story, the history of those, the, the human race of the, that seemed to be really tall, and they just, for whatever reason, their genetics grow them really big, they're there. Oh, oh no, right? Oh, no. But here's what I can tell you. When God brings you into where he wants you to be, because he loves you, he's going to give you options. Look at what they said. They said, there's the Negev. If you know anything about geography in Israel, that's, that's the desert. It's the Negev Desert in Israel, right? They said, well, this country, there, there's a desert there's a hill country that flourishes, it's green pastures, there's running water, there's a desert, there's hill country, there's a sea and a beach, and there's river country with rivers. Now, I don't know if they heard any banjos, but there's river country there, and like this place has everything, but the people are scattered everywhere, and we don't know, we just don't know. We just don't know. Have you ever had that in your life where God presents to you options, and you're like, I just, I just don't know. Because as a good, loving, heavenly father, he wants to provide for you, and he's going to provide options for you. And here's what I can tell you, just from experience alone and just from reading the Bible, that when you begin to follow God, he begins to present options. And here's what I can tell you, that if God gives you an option, you can pick behind door one, two, and three, neither one of them, it doesn't matter. They're all good because God provides good things to his children. The Bible says he is a good and loving and gracious father. He's the father of lights. James chapter 1 says that all good gifts come from the father. We get paralysis by analysis like, oh, man, I don't know which good option to pick. I don't, I just, I don't know. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pray about it. Maybe an angel will show up and point which door, right? Like we, we ask for all sorts of goofy stuff, and yet God provides all three options. He's like, I don't care. I'm, I'm your I'm your loving Heavenly Father. Pick an option. What, what does your heart want? What do you want? I want to love you. I want to I give you good things. And so he gives them good things. But the 10 of the 12 spies that were negative, all they said was, yeah, there's all this, there's all this beautiful land. But every place we went, it was fortified. It was defended well and no, I just, I don't know. I don't know that we could do this. And they're wringing their, I just picture them like wringing their hands. I, I don't, I don't know. I'm confused. I'm worried. And I love what Caleb does. Caleb and Joshua were the only two spies that said, we can do this. We got this. They didn't say they weren't going to have to fight. They just said, we can, we can go in and take this. And Caleb, the Bible says, Caleb hushed the crowd. He's like, guys, shut up. Shh, it's quiet. You don't even know what you're talking about. You, did you, did you, were we on the same spy trip? Like, did we go to the same, did you see what I saw? Caleb's like, guys, be quiet. 
And, he, and he, I just imagine the conversation going something like this. Caleb looking over at Joshua. Joshua looking back at Caleb and being like, like, did God not part the sea for us? Like, you guys, did you guys forget that? Do you not remember that God sent plagues into Egypt? Oh, and not only did God get us out of Egypt, but they gave us all their gold, too. Like, here, take all of the gold, take anything you want, just get out of here. And then he parted the sea. And, and do you guys not realize, did you just forget this morning that God provided breakfast for us? Like, boom, there was manna outside of our tent. All we had to do was get up, yawn, roll outside the tent, reach out, grab the food, eat it. I mean, are you guys like, do you guys forget all of this? I mean, can you imagine the conversation that Caleb and Joshua are having Guys, didn't you, didn't you remember, like, God just provided water and your shoe? Our, we've been out here wandering in the desert and our shoes haven't even worn out. Do you know as a parent what I would give for a pair of shoes that never wear out for my son? Right? Some of you are laughing. I, I took my son to the doctor this week and he wore his tennis shoes in. And I'm like, thanks, doc. The doctor looks down. My son wears a pair. He's probably got them on right now. My son has a pair of shoes. Is There's a hole in the toe, so he can stick his toe through the top of the shoe. And the other shoe is cracked right here on the side, and his foot sticks out. And I'm like, buddy, look, basketball season's over. Use your basketball shoes. Wear those now. Like, stop. He goes, no, these are so comfortable. We go into the doctor's office. The doctor gives him a fist pump. He goes, you like your shoes? He's like, he goes, yeah. He goes, I got those same pair of shoes. He's like, oh, no. And then he, then he puts, like, the icing on the cake. He goes, oh, yeah, I've got a hole right where you have a hole there, and I've got a hole on this shoe right where you have a hole. He goes, but I wear them anyway because, man, they're the most comfortable, best shoes I, I've got. He goes, I can't wear them to work, though, but anywhere else I wear them everywhere. And my son's just looking at me, smiling, like. <laughs> you know what we would give for shoes that don't wear out? And yet the Bible says as the Israelites wandered through the desert for 40 years, their shoes never wore out. God provided for them and protected them. I mean, are you serious? And so Caleb and Joshua were like, guys, if God's doing all this, what makes you think that if we go into battle, he won't go in and help and fight for us? That he won't fight for us. I imagine that Caleb and Joshua probably looked at each other and turned at the other 12 and said, listen, God didn't bring us out this far to take us back. And I'm here to tell you that God didn't bring you this far in life to take you back. For some of you, God is taking you places and doing things in your life, and you think it's your idea. And I'm here to tell you, it's really not. God's like, come on, let's go. And he'll put holy, like, divine thoughts in your head, and you'll be like, okay, let's go, let's do this. Right? Some of you get this, like, some of you had the idea, like, I'm gonna, I should get up and go to church this morning. Do you really think that was your idea? No, your idea was to stay at home and listen to Pastor Sheets and the Pillow Choir. That was your idea. God says, no, I need you in church. Right? God will put ideas in your head and you think it's you. It's not. And I'm here to tell you that God is bringing you along in life. He's like, I'm not going to take you back there if you just follow me. But what happened? They grumbled and they complained. And God said, all right. You got the next 40 years. Go wander in the desert. And you can, you know, if you've got a Bible, you can turn to the back. And you can see the map that they, that they walked. You can see the map. We know where they traveled. Or if you can Google it. And you can see, like, they wandered all of current Saudi Arabia. They walked all around through there. They wandered up and around, like, in 
Iran and Iraq, and they just kind of, and then eventually, after Moses died and that entire generation died off, their children went into the promised land, right? So I'm here to tell you that God didn't bring you this far to take you back. He has a divine purpose, and he wants you to have some holy momentum and some holy faith to say that God has given me this vision, God has given me this divine purpose, whatever it is, whatever the job is that God says, I want you to accomplish this, or, or whatever vision you have for your children, begin to instill it in them, right? Begin to give your children that. What you have to do, though, is you have to begin to take small steps. Small steps can lead to large momentum, I think I've shared with you the story of the ping pong ball and the bowling ball, right? How many of you have heard that story and the professor? My wife's raising her hand. That's because, well, she's married to me. All right. Let me tell you the story. Good. I'm glad you haven't heard this. So every semester, this professor of physics, true story, professor of physics at, at a college would have a bowling ball hanging from the ceiling. And then right next to it, he would have a ping pong ball hanging. And he always started every semester this, the same way with like, you know, physics 101 or physics 201. He'd start with the same question. How many of you believe that this ping pong ball can make this bowl, can move this bowling ball? And both of them were just sitting there. They weren't, there was no momentum or anything. And of course, every student was like, you're, this is ridiculous. This is stupid. And so what he would do is he would take the ping pong ball, which weighs 0 0.006 ounces up against the eight-pound bowling ball. And he would pull the ping-pong ball back like a pendulum, you know, like those little balls that... So he would let it go, and it would hit the bowling ball and nothing. Hit the bowling ball and bounce off. Hit the bowling ball and bounce off. But by the end of the semester, the bowling ball, which weighs 1,333 times more than the ping-pong ball, the bowling ball was moving, and no one wanted to sit under the bowling ball because that small ping pong ball with its momentum had created a greater momentum. And by the end of the semester, the eight pound bowling ball was just swinging because of that little ping pong ball. And I'm here to tell you that if you can start creating small momentum in your life and keep it up, you will begin to see larger momentum in years ahead. But we get defeated like these 10 other spies that say, oh, I can't do it. I don't, I don't see any way that this is possible. And we don't, we don't start with the baby steps. We don't do the small things. And then we wonder why we don't have any large momentum going in our life. It's because we're not willing to take the small ping pong ball back and release it and let it just hit the bowling ball long enough that eventually it's moving and swinging. And we have large mo momentum. Small steps can lead to large momentum. And so Caleb and Joshua are trying to tell everybody else and tell Moses this. And it says in verse 31 that the 10 other spies said, we can't. We just can't. We can't do it. And here's what I want to tell you. Can't never did. I did got the job done. Can't never did. I did got the job done. And I love in verse 32 where it says they reported back the land the land devours those living in it. Now, it takes a little bit of study to understand this phrase. So I did that studying for you, so I'm just going to tell you, all right? The land devours its people in the Hebrew literally means 
there's some sort of sickness going on in the people. There's some sort of plague. There's some sort of disease that is spreading in the people. And so what happened? The 10 spies said, oh my gosh, the land is diseased. The land is devouring its people. People are dying. There's some sort of plague. We can't go in there. You know what Caleb and Joshua saw? They're already weakened. We can go in and take them. What do you see? What's your perspective? Caleb and Joshua were like, the land devours its people. Are you kidding me? Let's go. They're already plagued. Let's go get them. The other ten are like, hmm, I'm not so sure we should go in there because everybody's sick. And we just, we, somebody out of the one million of us that are trampling through the desert, somebody might get the flu and we probably just shouldn't go. I mean, we laugh at that now, but that's what's going on in this discussion between Moses, his leaders, and these 12 spies. This is the discussion they're having. And Caleb's like, I just don't know. The land is devouring itself. And Caleb and Joshua saw the positive. The other 10 saw the negative. And here's what I can tell you. Caleb and Joshua, you still name your kids Caleb and Joshua because they saw the positive. They were the two that went in to the promised land. You don't name your kids any of the other 10 names. You don't name your kid Palti. You don't name your kid Igal. You don't name your kid Gether. And you definitely don't name your kid Nobby. <laughs> Nobody uses those names. Why? They never, yes, they're terrible and they never it's never recorded that those 10 people ever got into the promised land. They died off. You know who became the leaders and led the people into the promised land? Joshua replaced Moses. Caleb replaced the high priest, his right hand, and they went in. In fact, you can read about it in the book of Joshua. Joshua got a book named after him in the Bible. Why? Because they saw the opportunity. They saw what God saw and said, let's go do it. Let's go conquer it. Let's make this happen. The bigger they are, the harder they fall. Let's make this thing happen. The land's devouring its people. There's a plague. There's some sort of sickness going on. They are weak. Yes, the cities are fortified. And yes, they're like eight foot tall, some of them. And, but they're sick. We could go in and take this thing. Oh, I don't know. Some of us might get sick and it's really fortified. And I don't know. I'm just not sure. What do you see? What do you see in your, in your situation? What do you see in your family? What do you see in your job? Do you see God at work or do you see all of the problems? The number one reason that people succeed. Do you want know the number one reason that people succeed? It doesn't have to do with intelligence. It doesn't have to do with emotional intelligence. It doesn't have to do with talent. It doesn't have to do with ability. It doesn't have to do with luck. It doesn't have to do with any of that. You know what? The, they, they have done studies, and, and I watched a great six-minute TED Talk on this this week in prepping for this sermon. The number one reason that people succeed over other people, it's a four-letter word, grit. Grit. Those that have stick to and passion and vision and have grit succeed more than those who are super intelligent, than those who just occasionally get lucky. In fact, Angela Duckworth, you can look up Angela Duckworth TED Talk. 
You can look it up. It's a great six-minute video. But I just want to read a quote to you. She wrote a book, Grit, the Power of Passion and Perseverance. She's a psychologist from Harvard University. She's done multiple studies. She's been a CEO of a think tank. She's, She's spent her life studying grit. This is what she does for a living. And she says this, average people succeed as long as they keep going when the path is steep. Talent, intelligence, good fortune, and opportunity are less important to success. No, she said they're less important. She didn't say they were not important. She just said they're less important. Are less important to success than the ability to press through challenges. Later on, she says, grit predicts long-term success in nearly every realm of life. Grit predicts long-term success in nearly every realm of life. And I think we need more kids with grit. We need more adults with grit that will commit and stick to it and see the vision like Caleb and Joshua and say, yes, let's go. Do you know how much grit Joshua, can you imagine walking up to the promised land and going, we can take this, we can do it. But then Moses listens to the other 10 and the whole 40 years, Joshua and Caleb are going through the desert going, we could have done it. We could have done it, but we're going to stick it out. I totally disagree with leadership, but we're going to stick it out, and we're going to keep going, and we're going to keep marching. Because of their grit and their determination, they got in. Christina, Christina Koch, who is a female astronaut and has logged more days in space than the other female astronaut. She's logged 328 days in space. She's, tra- she's orbited the Earth 5,248 times. She has traveled through space 139 million miles in her orbits around space. That is enough for 291 trips to the moon and back. That's a lot of time in space, right? So when she landed, she was talking to the press at NASA and A journalist asked her, they said, the grit and the stamina you possess, where does it come from? Now listen to her response. I actually credit one person, and that's my grandmother. My grandmother is an incredible hard worker. They were farmers. And so I always like to think that I am hopefully making her proud. What did she learn from her grandmother? She learned grit and vision. She has that vision right, of her grandmother. Like, my grandmother is proud of me for being an astronaut. Tom Rath. Tom Rath wrote um, the New York Times best-selling book, and you can get it and take it. It's a book that I use when I coach people. It's called Strength Finder. He updated it. It's called Strength Finder 2.0, and I won't get in a lot into the book, but Tom Rath battled cancer for 25 years, Cancer in his kidneys, cancer in his pancreas, and cancer in his spine. When he was asked, how are you beating cancer? Because he's still alive. He, he overcame cancer in his spine, cancer in his kidneys, cancer in his pancreas. He said, grit, sheer determination. But then he did something that most people don't do. He said, I changed my friends up. I couldn't keep running around with the same people. He said, the top five people that I ran around with, I changed all of them. And I found people that were optimistic, funny to be with, positive. I wanted those type of people, he said, because I became the, 
I became the summation of the five people I ran around with. So be, I surrounded myself with positive, forward-thinking, visionary people that were funny and fun. He goes, and I just gritted my teeth and gritted out. In fact, Dan Miller, who wrote 48 Days to the Work You Love, tremendous book, I suggest you read it as well. He said in his life coaching, he's coached thousands of people. He says what he has found is this. You become the average of the five people you run with. So if you want to increase your social, social status, you need to start running around with people who have a higher social status. If you want to grow in your understanding of relationships, you need to find, start running around with five people that have very strong relational skills. You become the average of the people, the, your top five friends, you become the average of that. If you want to grow, you have to surround yourself with the right people. Moses didn't do that. He made the wrong decision. Right? Show me your friends and I'll show you your future. Hands down, every time. If you want your life to improve, then you've got to get with people who are working to improve their life. If you have gritty, visionary friends who are positive and visionary, you will become a visionary, positive, gritty person. You've got to decide to surround yourself with those people. In closing, I want to leave you with this. If we boil it down to math, Grit and determination, it boils down to this. Passion plus perseverance times your vision equals grit. If you have the passion and the perseverance and your vision is big enough, you will have the grit to stick it out. But most of us lack vision in our life. If I came up to you and said, what are your five-year goals? The vast majority of you would look at me and go, have more money in the bank, still be married, <laughs> right? Like, Maybe get the kids out of the house. Most of us don't have five, ten-year visions or goals for our family. Most of us lack vision. So when the storms hit, we're like, uh, I just know i got to get through the storm. Most of us don't have a game plan. And in closing, the most positive, most passionate, greatest visionary the person with the greatest perseverance, Jesus Christ. You talk about grit to say, you know what? I'm going to leave heaven. I'm going to go down to earth in a diaper and go through everything that a baby goes through. I'm going to learn to walk. I'm going to strip myself of the ability to know everything at all times. And I'm only going to know whatever the Father tells me and what I study in a book. And I learned. Because the Bible says that he had to learn and he had to grow. Willingly stripped himself of all of that to come down and say, yeah, oh, and that whole cross, taking the beating, getting the nails nailed into me, literally hanging naked, no loincloth, completely naked on the cross, beat for you and me. He said, you know what, I'll take that because I have a vision of them standing with me in heaven. And they're worth it. And you know why we're worth it? Because the Bible says in Genesis that you and I were made in the image of God. That's why we're worth it. We're not worth it because of something we've done. We're not worth it because we say the right things or do the right things or go to the right places or we tell the truth when we wanted to tell a lie. That doesn't make us worth it. 
The Bible says that you and I are worth it because from day one, he said, I'm going to create a being on this planet that's made in my image. And I'm going to give him the ability to rule and reign in his dominion on earth the way I rule and reign in heaven. Oh, and I'm going to give him this thing called free will and let him choose whether or not he wants and she, whether or not they want to love me. And if they choose not to love me and walk away from me, I'm willing to take the pain of that. But I'm going to, because I love them, I want to give them the free will to make their own choice. That's grit. That's vision. That's saying, I know the relationship with humanity may go awry. I've got a plan to fix it. I have a vision. But in the meantime, I want to connect with them and have that relationship. And today he's saying, I want that relationship with you. I have a vision for your life. I have a plan. I want to take you into the promised land. Not just heaven, but the land and the vision that I have for you. Jeremiah 29, 11. I know the plans and the vision and the purpose that I have for you. To prosper you and not to harm you. To give you hope and to give you a future. That's his plan for you. But if I can give you a sports analogy, you're not going to know the game plan if you're not in the locker room and hanging out with the coach. You're just not. And you're going to go out on the field of life and be like, oh, I don't know where I'm going. Let's stand up this morning. So maybe you're here today, and, and maybe that's you. Maybe you need to reconnect with Christ and recommit your life to Christ or commit your life completely to Christ. I want to invite you to do that. I want to ask Aaron and Lori to come down on this side and ask um, Amy and Jesse to come down on this side, and they're just going to pray with you. If you want to accept Christ, if you, want to, if you don't want to come forward, to say, I'm going to commit my life to Christ and follow Jesus. If you're like, man, I don't, I don't want to come forward. The other thing you can do is go to the connect table, fill out a card, check mark that I want to commit my life to Christ, drop it in the, drop it in the box, and I will be more than happy to give you a call this week and just talk about that and talk about your life and your commitment. If you're here this morning, you need prayer for anything else as we close out in song. We want to pray with you. The Bible says where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst. And he says, if two or three of you will lay hands and touch and believe, I will do it for you. And so, who doesn't want God on your side fighting for you, right? And so prayer invites him into that circumstance. Let's sing.